We are going to be in the Gospel of John for the next two weeks. Um, as I mentioned during the Lord's table, uh, John, uh, he has, he spends far more time on certain aspects of, uh, of the post-resurrection than other gospel writers do. Now, John appears to um, kind of operate in concert with Mark. There's some things that John says um, that seem to indicate that he's, he's aware of. Uh, well, there's things throughout the Gospel of John. It's pretty clear that John is aware of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and so he's filling, in, he's filling in some gaps and holes as an eyewitness would. But as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the service, John is not writing to uh, contemporary readers. So in other words, people that might have been alive when Jesus was alive. This is written, this is the last of the Gospels. It's written toward the end of the first century. It's written to the second and third generation of Christians, explaining to them and reminding them of who Jesus is, was, and will be. And that, that's a significant point about the Gospel of John. If you read John as a, if you read John as just a story, one of the things that you will notice is he tells things completely out of order in comparison to the other Gospels. On top of that, he skips over really things we think are super important, and he dwells on things that we go, wait, is he still, they still having the same conversation? You know, there's stuff that happens, and then he brings up stuff that doesn't appear anywhere else in the Gospels. And the reason that John is doing that is that John is uh, writing his gospel to teach the second and third generation of Christians uh, wh what to believe and why they should believe it about Jesus. Now, there are a lot of good reasons why he's doing that. Like I mentioned, they had, weren't eyewitnesses. For another, there were a lot of heretical and apostate groups rising up who were saying things about Jesus that John needed to address. There were people saying that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he, he had a substitute. And he had somebody else get crucified for him. And first of all, I don't even understand how that contract could work. You know, it's like, well, listen, so I'm going to go through the trial, the whole deal. But as we're walking toward the cross, if you could swap places and die, that would be great. Um, there, there were people that believed that Jesus didn't have a physical body. There were people that were arguing um, that, that uh, you know, that, that there were, everybody was in cahoots. And so John... John takes a very measured, very careful process. He makes a very uh, careful argument, what could almost be a legal argument, for why Jesus is the Son of God, which is his conclusion in John 20, 31. Here, we're at the, pretty much at the end um, of where all the other Gospels leave off. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, he's appeared to Mary Magdalene. And as we read in the last couple of weeks, there's this moment where Jesus then appears to his disciples in an upper room, um, in, a, in a house. But John tells this story in a very interesting way. And let's go ahead and look at John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. So keep in mind, this is the Sunday that Jesus is raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene has just seen him. She's had an interaction with him. They've told the disciples that he's, he's risen. And then in verse 9, on the evening of that first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. Now that should sound familiar. That's 
what he's done in the other three Gospels. Although John includes that one little detail, the doors were locked. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, odd moment, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, we've just read that. Now we're going to read a, a, a second appearance, and I want you to keep in mind kind of making a checklist of things that are the same and things that are different. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, or called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the mark of the nails and the place of my and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were in a, inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "Peace be with you." Then he said to Thomas, "Put your finger here. See my hands." Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Remember, we talked about this word. It is not not it's not not knowing. It is actively not believing. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God." And Jesus said to him, "Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed." Join me in a word of prayer. Father, as we fall into this category of those who have not seen and yet believe, Father, we look to Christ, we look to see Him, knowing that He is as real today as He was when He stood in front of Thomas. Lord, help us uh, to look to Your Word, to know You better, and in knowing You better uh, through Christ, to know ourselves, our place, our mission, our calling. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first of all, let's, let's get a couple of things out of the way. Uh, we have often talked about this, and I will put this right up in the front. There are many, many Bible scholars, quote-unquote, who say that the gospel writers did not believe Jesus was God. I'm really curious how they could possibly believe that when Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That seems pretty straightforward. This is not some special word. It is not some kind of special statement. There is no doubt in John's gospel specifically, but in all four, that the gospel writer, that the apostle John, believed that Jesus was God. He was the God of the Old Testament. Jesus, I mean, Paul, uh, John even has him saying, uh, I am. I mean, he is, he is openly declaring that he is the God of the Old Testament um, in the gospel of John. So there is, there's no doubt what's going on here. The resurrected Christ, he is uh, the risen Lord. He is uh, the coming one. He is uh, Emmanuel, uh, God with us. But when, and we, we read this and it seems pretty familiar, right? They're in, the, they're in the, the, the room. But John adds this little note about the doors being locked. Now, Today, in our modern world, locking a door is not a big deal. You got a key, you stick it in, you turn it, or your door automatically locks. How many of you have that happen to you? 
and then you realize the door locked behind you, um, and then you're sending one of your children through a window, all right? Um, but, but that's not how you lock doors in the ancient world. You had to bar it. You had to put a, you know, something across it to keep it from being opened, all right? So there was, there was an intentional act. My guess is, because John includes this, my guess is after all the other disciples got in the room, they turned around and looked at the youngest of the crew, which of course was John, and they said, bar the door. So that's why John knows that this has happened. He was physically there when he did it. He's verifying that this was the case. He says the doors were locked, and why were they locked? Because of the fear of the Jews. So the, the, the disciples, now keep in mind, Mary Magdalene's already told them that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So what are they afraid of? Well, they're afraid that the Jews are going to come and silence them over this whole Jesus thing. It's time to clean up the mess. It's time to send in the fixers. All right? It's time to make sure that nobody hears about this Jesus guy again. That's what they're terrified of. And so they lock the door, and the ten are, are in there. The, there. There's ten of them because Thomas isn't there. Now, I have a really good question about this. Why isn't Thomas there? This is one of those things, one of those moments we will never know because we're, we don't have any details. By the way, John is the only person that shares any details about Thomas. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he just gets named in the list. That's all that goes on with him. But here, John, John is making sure we understand, all right, so Thomas wasn't there. And I really want to know what Thomas is doing. Was he sent out for milk? I mean, what? Why is he, why is he not there? And why does Jesus choose when he's not there to appear? Because he shows up to the disciples. He says, here I am, peace be unto you. The whole conversation, we're familiar with this whole thing. And he commissions them. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending out you. And then he breathes on them. Now this again is a moment. Now we read that and we go, that's really weird. If you think about this, this is John letting us know Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. How did, Jesus, how did the God of the Old Testament turn uh, the, the human being that he molded out of the dust into a living soul? He breathed into him. And so John is evoking Genesis. John evokes Genesis all the time. And this is this idea that Jesus breathes into them and they become the apostles. He says, and he, he talks about if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven for them. We could, we could talk about that passage another time. But we don't, there's something hugely significant. There's something missing here, right? There's something missing in a big way. All we have in verse 20 is that the disciples were glad when they saw him. So Jesus shows up, peace unto you. They're glad when they saw him. They're, they're happy. They're rejoicing. Jesus is here. That's great. Jesus gives them a commission. We don't get their response. Jesus appears. Peace unto you. Now, in the other Gospels, he says, bring me some food. You know, there's a, there's a, a conversation. This is all we get from John. And again, we have to keep asking the question, why isn't Thomas here? Why does Jesus choose to appear with Thomas not there? And why does John, of all the gospel writers, record that particular situation? 
Then we have the moment where they say to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says in verse 25, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my fingers in the marks of the nails, place my hand to the side, I will never believe. Why does John record this? Who is John writing his gospel for? He's writing his gospel for people who will never be able to see Jesus. They will never be able to touch wounds. They have to take John's testimony and the testimony of the apostles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the testimony of the apostle Paul, all in circulation at this point. They have to take those by faith. And so John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings up a story that doesn't exist in the other Gospels, not because it wasn't there, but because it wasn't important for them. They didn't feel the need to share this because they were writing to contemporaries, this bit of Thomas. But John says, just so you know, when Jesus appeared to us, there was one that had some legitimate concerns. Because isn't Thomas's concern i mean everybody gets on thomas's case oh thomas the doubter all right yeah i mean your friends say while you were out getting milk jesus showed up (laughs) now i mean i could be wrong i picture uh you know john of course is a sweet young you know the disciple that jesus loved and he would never ever do anything wrong but i have this feeling that if peter and james could could pull a trick on somebody they did that they would mess with people i have this feeling that there were some members of the disciples remember these are human beings when you put 11 guys together what is going to happen and so thomas comes back they said you know thomas while you were gone jesus showed up he goes yeah right guys right guys the door's locked i remember the time we were all going to go fishing and you left told me it was on Thursday and it was on Wednesday. You know, I, I remember, you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not playing that game again. I remember, you know, you guys put a fish in my pillowcase. I remember that, you know, I'm not messing with this. This is why my brother, the other twin, won't hang out with you. And I, I could be wrong. But they, he's, he's got a legitimate concern. Now, people get on, on his case, but... When Jesus was headed to, uh, to the house of, of Lazarus, Mar- Lazarus Mar- Martha, and Mary, because Lazarus had died, and they were worried that the Jews were going to come and they were going to uh, possibly kill Jesus. There were a lot of people angry with him. In John chapter 11, it's Thomas who says, well, we should go with Jesus. If we die, we die. So don't get in your mind that Thomas has sometimes spent, somehow spent his entire lifetime doubting everything Jesus said. But rather that Thomas, when, when Jesus says something, Thomas seems pretty committed. And so he's expressing a legitimate concern. There's no evidence. He wasn't there. And so Thomas is saying, why should I believe this? Thomas was not weak. And when Jesus shows up eight days later, which means he shows up on a Monday, this I love, Jesus shows up on, he doesn't come back on Sunday, which would have made the most sense, right? They're all going to be together on the first day of the week, right? But instead he shows up on Monday. They all happen to be there and they're still locking the doors. 
Jesus walked in and said, peace be with you, I'm with you, don't worry, you're protected, all that stuff last Sunday. By the time they get to the following Monday, they're like, I don't know, man. I don't know how much we can trust this peace with you thing. Lock the doors. We're in a bad neighborhood. Click. Lock the doors. And Thomas is there. And Jesus shows up. He says, peace be with you. And he says to Thomas something that he didn't say to the other disciples. He says, put your fingers in. Put your hand in. And at which point one of the other disciples is going, gross. But he says, come on. And Thomas doesn't even do it. You notice that it doesn't say that Thomas does it. It just says that Jesus offers it to him. And he says, do not disbelieve. He says, if this is what it takes for you to believe, then go ahead. And at that point, Thomas falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas wasn't weak. His doubts were legitimate. His, his, his concerns, to be honest, were being shared by the rest of the disciples. It's not like the other disciples. He's just maybe a little bit, he's a little bit behind the curve. But we read from Matthew and Mark, I mean, the other disciples were just as terrified about this situation. They were unsure. They were struggling. Thomas just gives voice to something that maybe other people weren't willing to say. But when he is given the opportunity to touch when he did not see, he steps in faith. And then Jesus takes that and he picks it up and he says in verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who is he talking about? He's talking about that second and third generation of Christians that the book is written to, who have had to believe without seeing. He says, and, he, and, and look, let, let's, let's broaden our scope when we make an application about this passage. For, for the, the ten, the ones without Thomas, seeing Jesus was enough, but the confirmation with Thomas was, was really enough. So they were glad when they saw Jesus, but they were still locking the doors. So their, their growth, it needed, it took Thomas asking a question for the other 10 to keep growing in their belief. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? That, that those, those 10, they were glad, but when he, show, he doesn't show up, Jesus doesn't show up to Thomas alone. He shows up to Thomas when the other ten are there. Because they need the confirmation that Jesus um, is aware of, first of all, he's aware of their conversation. That's got to be creepy. When Jesus, Jesus is like, yeah, I know what you said last week. Thomas is like, okay. But secondly, but I mean, they're there, they're present. They're still locking the doors. They still need this confirmation. They need this moment. And then Jesus, I think, you know, this is Jesus breaking the fourth wall and talking to the audience. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus dealt with Thomas's disbelief to teach him and the others and us about the beautiful diversity and interconnectedness of belief. 
See, we, we tend to think about belief as a personal thing. Well, that's your belief. But the reality is that beliefs do not exist in isolation. No beliefs do. All right? Um, you, don't, you don't just invent something and go, this is what I believe. I don't need any confirmation of it. I mean, people do that, but let's face it. I mean, aluminum foil hats, right? I mean, it, this is not a common thing. And certainly not in the church, not in the fellowship of believers. We do not have these isolated one-man theories. But rather, and we talked about it last week, when the Holy Spirit is working, right? Is it in conformity with the Word? Does it, is it um, a reflection of Christ? And, and is it confirmed by the people of God? So the same thing is going on with our belief. It, it, is, it is virtually impossible to believe something in complete isolation, right? To just, um, just come up with something and say, this is true. I don't need any confirmation of it. I don't need anybody else to believe it. Um, I'm just going to, this is, I'm going to, I, I just, this is my belief. That's not a normal human thing. We tend to seek out those who are exploring the same questions as we are, and, and get confirmation of our belief. And some of us, some of us, we need to see Jesus. We, we, we like the ten, we can be glad about that, and we can believe, but then the confirmation of, of others interacting with Jesus, we need that. It moves us along. It helps us to grow and mature. And, and some of us, our belief maybe starts with doubt and leads into experience. But we still need the confirmation of maybe those who just saw. Right? See, see the ten might have needed Thomas's appearance, but Thomas needed the ten. Because without the ten telling him that Jesus had appeared, would he have known? No. He needed them there. There's an interconnectedness of faith. And for us as believers, when we expect everybody to come to the same conclusions at the same time, when we expect everybody to everybody's faith to look like ours, then we're not, we're not building community. Um, we're building uh, mindless obedience. Because a community is about faith manifest in diversity, in us connecting and growing and strengthening one another and being strengthened by each other. Would Peter's faith have been strong enough if it had not been for Thomas? Would John's faith have been strong enough if it had not been that he had been asked to lock the doors? And so there was a confirmation of that relationship. Would the second generation of believers, the third generation of believers, would their faith been strong enough if Jesus had not ministered to the ten and Thomas in the way that he did? See, there is always going to be a connectivity. There's always going to be a web. There's always going to be a, 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 a connection. And it's not necessarily a causal relationship. In other words, it is not necessarily that, um, you know, 
uh, I, I'm, I'm the head honcho, then there are a bunch of head honcho, lower honchos underneath me, and all those honchos have lesser honchos. Eventually, we get down to the lowest honchos. Right? Christianity is not a pyramid scheme. Right? Um, but there, instead of thinking of it that way, we need to think of it in, in a, a relationship of tensegrity. What is tensegrity? I'm glad you asked. Uh, tensegrity is the ability the, of your body to balance itself so that you can do things like reach your arm out. Tensegrity is the way that your body is interconnected in multiple ways to allow your body to move in ways it could not move if it was unconnected. If the muscle fibers in your shoulder were not connected in the way that the muscle fibers in your shoulder are connected to all of the other muscles in your arm and your, your side and your chest and your back, you would not be able to just lift your arm. Anyone with bad shoulders will tell you that. There is a tensegrity, there is balance, there is push, there is pull, there is gravity, there's muscle fibers, there's cell, cell division, there's all kinds of things that are happening that allow your body to do what your body does. In the same way, in the church, there are all kinds of things going on and they are all interconnected. They are all interwoven for our growth and encouragement and our, and our, 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 our maturity and our belief and our overcoming of disbelief. It's a community thing. Um, years ago, I started to, to talk about the church this way. Those of you that grew up in church, you know this one. Uh, if you were a little kid, you used to learn this. Here's the church and here's the steeple. Open the doors. Where are the people? And then they would go like this. And the, the first time I saw a teacher do this, it confused me because I didn't realize there's a difference between these two. Um, you know, but here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. There's all the people. And for a long time, that was what I believed the church was, that it was just a building full of people. The problem with that is in the reality, if we really look at Scripture, and we really look at John in particular, the Johannine literature, the way that John writes, it is not the people that is the church. It's the Holy Spirit relationships among the people that is the church. It is that God, because if they took the group of us and put us in Shaw's, which by the way, praise the Lord, they took those stupid one-directional signs down. I had no problem following them. I just had an issue with people who didn't. I'm like, look, I'm following the lines and a 95-year-old woman in a cart is coming up the other direction. What am I supposed to do? If I turn around, I'm breaking the rules. So I pin myself against the Cheez-Its. <laughs> Shopping took a long time with those one-directional signs. Anyway. We drop ourselves in the Shaw, in Shaw's. That's not the church. Oh, but I like all these people. Yeah. I like plenty of people. But we're not the church. The church is the Holy Spirit bringing us together in that tensegrity, all that different relationships and connections that only He can understand to encourage and edify and provoke and chasten and discipline and, uh, and elevate um, and... and all those different relationships that the Holy Spirit uses. That's the church. The church isn't the pastor and the people. 
That's what Roman Catholic doctrine is. Roman Catholic doctrine is that the church is the hierarchy and, uh, of priests and everybody else exists to pay their bills. I'm not making that up and I'm not exaggerating it either. Um, the church is also not a complete democracy. Majority decides doctrine. Also not true. The church is not a hierarchy. It's not anarchy. The church is the Holy Spirit at work in the relationships of living, broken, saved people to bring glory to the name of Jesus, to bring the gospel to the world, to bring encouragement and, and strengthening and, and direction and chastening to believers, to encourage us in holiness, to correct our sin, to push us beyond the boundaries of what we think we can do so we can see what God can do. The, the writer of Hebrews, he reminds us not to forsake the assembling together of others, and he says, because when you do, you lose the provoking, you lose the, the push behind your faith. Thomas is us. We need the connection with Jesus and others, both those who came before and those who come after. We, we need that for the reality of Christ to continue in our lives. Jesus says to Thomas, this is who you are. All of your, all of your doubts, all of your concerns, and in speaking to, John, to Thomas, speaking to the ten, this is who you are. With your locked doors and your fear of the Jews and sending Thomas out for milk. This is who you are. This, this, this complicated, sometimes difficult web of relationships of those who have called Christ as who call Christ their Lord, this is who we are. It's so easy to lock ourselves away, to say, all I need is Jesus and me. All I need is my Bible. It's got more than enough notes. I, I, it's so easy to say we don't need that fellowship. Let me offer you just one, I'll give you one little case study at the end of this. COVID has taught us. Has not COVID taught us that the church is more than just participating? There is still something missing, isn't there? In our hope and our, and our, 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 our operation as a church because we're not eating together. We're not fellowshipping freely. Don't you all feel that? Even those of you that think that it's not time for us to do that yet, we know that that's there, right? We still sit there and going, but it sure would be nice for us to be able to do that. Even the introverted of us, and you guys know, I absolutely despise being in close spaces with lots of people. That's why when we had potlucks downstairs, where is Eric? Always. I'm always on the outside wall until, you know, the people who are going to eat dessert ate it and left. Then there are seats. Then I'll go sit down. Um, but I tend to stay on the outside. But I wouldn't trade seeing God's people together eating for anything. Fellowshipping, connecting. See, 
see, we, we all know there's more to the church than just coming to church, doing our thing, and then going home. There's more to it. There is an interconnection of relationships. And we all know that as, as you know, it doesn't matter if I were the greatest preacher in the universe... We know that the vast majority of your growth as Christians is not going to happen in the 35 minutes that I preach a sermon on Sunday morning. It's going to happen in your relationships and connections to one another all through the week. All through the year. Are we the church? Then let's be the church. Let's encourage one another. Let's chasten one another. Let's be connected. Let's raise up the next generation of leaders in the church. The children are not the future. The children are the present. Let's be willing to impart our journeys to one another. Let's be honest about what we're dealing with. Let's face the realities of our relationships. Let's suck it up, be men and women, get over the differences and keep moving forward for Christ. We are the church. The relationships we have are the Holy Spirit's relationships. He has brought us together. He will testify among us. And though we do not touch and see, we believe. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, your hand among us and through us.